listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You guys can have a seat. Again, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Clint. If you're a visitor here, we just want you to say we are thankful that you are here, and we do not think it's an accident uh, that you are here. We're continuing our series on the life of David this morning, and I have to tell you, you know, when I first read today's passage, I almost immediately thought of my friend Eric Covington in fifth grade. There was this time where we, I don't know what we had been doing. We had, must have been a recess or something, but we came into lunch and we were hot and sweaty and so thirsty. And so, man, we immediately, we got our lunch trays and we got our drinks and we went to that table and we sat down and I'm talking the nanosecond, my friend Eric's tray hit the table. As soon as that happened, man, he bust open his carpet of milk and he turned that thing upside down and he drank two big gulps. And y'all, up until that moment, I thought people turning green was like a euphemism or a metaphor or hyperbole or something like that. No, I'm telling y'all, my friend Eric, right across from me, turned legit green. And I mean, his face is all green. I just say, Eric, what? man, what is wrong? And y'all, without saying a word, he just poured the rest of that milk onto his entree instead of this white liquid waterfall, all that came out was this plop, plop of sour milk. Poor, y'all, poor Eric. He sat down so excited, expecting something so cool and refreshing, and instead all he got was two big gulps of sour milk. You know, we're continuing our series in David, and it's been awesome. It's been incredible so far. I mean, you may remember that God chose him back in 1 Samuel 16 from amongst all his brothers, all the people in Israel. You know, there's the great line, man looks at the outward appearance, but not God. God looks at the heart, and God looks at David's heart, and he anoints him king. 1 Samuel 13, David is called a man after God's own heart. And who can forget David and Goliath? The whole nation is scared, intimidated this man, but not David. He believes God will give them victory over his enemies, and so he slays Goliath. And if you were here last week, an amazing display of grace with Mephibosheth, the son, the crippled son of his enemy. And, God, or, and David shows him grace in this completely selfless way. He gave him protection, a future, and a place to belong in this amazing display of great grace. And so maybe you're here this morning, you've heard some of these incredible stories, and you're show, ready, showed up, you know, ready for some warm fuzzies, something cool and refreshing, But instead, we're about to get two big gulps of sour milk. Today's passage is 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story known as David and Bathsheba. Probably one of the most famous episodes in David's life, next to the story of him and Goliath. So if you want to be turning in your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 11. And y'all, this is the Bible's version of a horror film. This is ugly to look at. But you know, it's really, it's fascinating. It's like the Bible won't let us look away. So if you read all the chapters leading up to this in 2 Samuel, man, it is fast-paced. There's a lot of summary, a lot of generalization. Time goes by really fast before and after this. But chapter 11, y'all, is slow motion. 
It's, it's as if the Bible is demanding that we take notice of this story and will not let us look away. It's like the Bible is telling us, you're not just going to get a sip of the sour milk. Y'all, you're going to get two big gulps. And many of you know this story. But I think, even if you know this story, y'all, I think you'll be surprised. Because as bad as you think this story may be, when you look at it closely, it's worse. You know, the story is often just kind of written off as, you know, a bored man full of lust. And that's all that it is. You know, David, before this episode's over, he will break five commandments, half the commandments. Any commandment you can break against a person, man, David bats a thousand on them. And there's going to be not one, not two, but three cover-ups, all plotted and executed over a long period of time. So why does the Bible slow down here? Why does the Bible slow down and make us do what no one wants to do, take these two big gulps? And I th- here's the reason. I think it's because we all carry in us a tendency to minimize sin. And so what the Scriptures are saying to us this morning is, hey, whatever you think you know about sin, it's worse. So on that happy note, let's read. We'll start in verse 1, the story of David and Bathsheba. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So the passage starts like maybe we come in. It's spring. Everything's growing. Everything's prosperous. David is doing well. He's at the pinnacle of his wealth and his power. This sounds great. But immediately we notice something is off because David is in bed when he should have been in battle. Before this, every time David's armies go out to battle, who's leading the army? David. And that wasn't just him. That's what a king in those days was supposed to do. You led your army to battle, but this time he outsources it. He sends Joab, he sends his army, and he stays in the palace in bed. He's indulging himself. And you know, who can blame him? him? He's got this great palace. He's worked for it. He's earned it. You know, he's had a hard life up till now, but now God has blessed him. And so what is wrong with enjoying a little bit of the fruits of your labor? right? For once, let somebody else lead the armies. For once, let someone else do the fighting. And after all, y'all, God had given him a very important job. God had anointed him king, and so he had a lot of kingly things to do. So yeah, let's send Joab out with the armies. And so he does. Now we pick it up verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent the messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she went and told David, I am pregnant. David, he's standing out, would have been like an upstairs outdoor balcony in his palace, again, while his armies are at war, and he sees Bathsheba. And y'all, in this passage, this passage is full of action verbs, all by David's doing. So David, he sent, he inquired, he took, he lay with her. In these verses, David is acting decisively and deliberately to get exactly what he wants. So, y'all, this is not accidental stumble. This is not the devil made me do it, okay? David is acting deliberately. 
You know, in verse 3, he's actually got a chance, though, to pump the brakes a little bit. You know, he sends, they don't even name the servant, just some poor soul. He sends out to inquire who this person is, and their response is very interesting. So they, he comes back and he says, you know, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, which was very common. You often referred to people based on who their parents were and their ancestors were. But then next, he says, the wife of Uriah, and that's very unusual. You almost never referred to who someone was by their spouse. So what's he doing? He wants him to know this is Uriah's wife. Well, who was Uriah? Uriah was one of David's mighty men. So when David was out in the wilderness on the run for his life, he was one of the few men that went to David and fought for him when no one else would. When David was at his most desperate and on the run and in the wilderness, Uriah came and fought for him. Y'all, David quite literally owes his life to Uriah. And I love that the servant puts it in the form of a question. He doesn't just say, hey, Dumbo, that's, that's Uriah's wife. He says, hey, uh, isn't that the wife of Uriah so that David will have to answer to himself? Yes, my mighty man, the man who fought to spare my life. That is his wife. He'll have to answer that to himself before he proceeds. But he does proceed. And then Bathsheba utters the only words recorded from her in Scripture, I'm pregnant. Pretty bad, huh? We're just getting started. Verse 6, David comes up with cover-up plan number one. In verse 6 through 8, he says, no big deal. I'll send for Uriah. He'll come back, and I'll send him home. And then when the baby is conceived or the baby is born, everyone will just assume it's Uriah's baby. No problem, right? We got this. And so he sends for Uriah. Uriah gets there, and David's like, oh, hey, how's the battle going? You're doing all right? Your family all right? He doesn't care about any of those things, right? He's just softening him up, sends him to his house, and then even sends a gift to Uriah to his house to soften him up even more. He thinks this will be great. The plan is simple, but David is in for a shot. Verse 9 through 11, y'all, Uriah doesn't do it. He refuses to go home. He actually, verse 9 says, he sleeps at the door of the king's house. Uriah wouldn't do it. Why not? Let's listen to his response in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, or booths were like tents. They dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Y'all, have you ever been put to shame by the person doing the right thing that you know you're supposed to be doing? You know, that's what Uriah does here to David. He won't do it. It's this amazing display of loyalty and humility. He says, how can I sleep in my own bed and be comfortable when my countrymen and my fellow warriors are out sleeping in tents on the battlefield? And then pay attention to his words in verse 11. As you live and your soul lives. Probably without knowing it, Uriah gives David the second chance to think about what he's doing. And he's telling him, hey, the decisions that we're making in this whole deal, they affect our lives and our very souls. But you know what? David persists. Uh, verse 14 through 17. So uh, 
David goes, and actually he's going to give a second chance. So Uriah comes back, he won't do it, and then David says, well, we'll, we'll try this again. And in cover-up number two, he says, well, I'll just, get, I'll just get Uriah a little drunk, and we'll try this again. But he, so he, uh, he brings Uriah, gets him drunk, but even still, Uriah won't do it. And then, then it gets even worse. Verse 14 through 17. This is cover-up number three. So what happens is David, he says, okay, well, if, if Uriah's not going to cooperate, then we've got to get rid of him. We're going to have him killed. Conveniently, there's a war going on, and so I can just send him into battle. I'm going to write my commander, Joab, and say, hey, go pick a fight, and when you pick a fight, send little Uriah out there in the front, and he'll be killed, and this whole thing will be taken care of. And you know what's interesting? Do you want to know how trustworthy Uriah is? David can send Uriah carrying his own death warrant, and he knows Uriah won't read it. That's who he sends to deliver the message to Joab. He writes the letter. Hey, Joab, he writes the instructions to his commander and gives them to Uriah to deliver to Joab. David is exploiting Uriah's faithfulness and honor to cover up his own sin. And so they execute the plan. Joab goes and picks a fight. You know, they, they pick a fight with these people, and these people run back to their walled city. And so he tells some soldiers, hey, I know it's a big walled fortress, but you go run right up to the wall and see what you can do. And of course, you do that, you're easy pickings. But here's what, what's interesting. He can't just send, hey, just you, Uriah, you go over there. That's too suspicious. And Joab is smart. He knows David is plotting. He knows that'll be too obvious. So to help cover it up further, he's got to send a lot of men to the wall. And so it's not just Uriah that is killed. In verse 17, it is many men who are killed in this endeavor. So then verse 18 through 24, Joab sends a messenger to tell David what's happened. And how he, the instructions he gives are very revealing. He says, listen, you're going to tell him what we did, and David's going to be furious because this was a really bad plan. I mean, this was a really dumb plan to send a, a few men up against the walls of a city. This was a bad idea. And so you're going to tell him this. He's going to start getting angry. He's going to start asking you questions. But here's what you do when the king starts to get angry with you. Just tell him, oh, and also Uriah is dead. Just add that at the end, and that will appease his anger. And that's exactly what happened. He tells him, hey, David, I did your dirty work. Uriah is dead. And Joab knows this will calm David's anger because in the end, that is all David really cares about, is that it got done. So verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, this is what you go back and tell him, don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Encourage him. Tell Joab, hey, great job, buddy. You're doing great. Keep going. He tells Joab, hey, don't let this thing displease you. You know, these things happen in war. Men die. They would probably die eventually anyway. Think about it, guys. Every commandment you can break against another person we've broken. Innocent men have died. Hey, but don't let it get you down. Don't let it make you unhappy. Don't let it displease you. What? This is actually a way to think about this is the fourth cover-up. Hey, cover, cover it up in your own heart so you don't let what we've done displease you. Have you wondered where God is in all this? 
God is yet to appear in this chapter, yet to be mentioned. He seems completely absent. And yes, in David's mind, in his thoughts, in his actions, he has forgotten God, and God is absent. But he's not really absent. We're reminded in the very last verse that God has seen the whole thing. So verse 26 and 27, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then the last verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Only reference to God in the whole chapter. And we were reminded, even though David may have forgotten God, God has seen the whole sordid affair, and he is displeased. And that word's very telling. We just heard that word, displeased, didn't we? It's when David told his commander, Joab, hey, don't let this displease you. And right after that, we found, find out that God is very displeased. See, he's saying, you know, you may be willing to sweep it all under the rug, but God isn't. This may be no big deal to you, but it is to God. And that is how the story of David and Bathsheba ends. Yo, that's ugly, isn't it? My goodness, that's ugly. We should be all sobered up by now. Again, we've had to take a slow motion look, staring in the face of deep sin and God's displeasure with it. And there's two ways we can react to this story, y'all. There's two ways. The first way that we kind of tend towards is kind of this false shock, you know? Then we tend to do this when we find out other people sin, especially if it's something that's really taboo to us, you know? And so we get the gasp, oh! <gasps> How could they? <gasps> I'm shocked, right? We do this. Yo, my mama Mac, she had a saying. She lived to be 99 years old, and she had a saying. When you've done something really dumb, she'd just look at you and say, God bless America. <laughs> Which sounds, you know, like a nice enough thing to say. Sounds fairly harmless, but translated it meant, I am profoundly amazed at what an idiot you are. It's kind of like, if this is what we have to work with, then Lord help us, right? I heard her say that phrase a lot to me growing up. But that's often our reaction to stories like this. Well, God bless America. I can't believe that. I'm here to tell you, if that's your reaction, it's something along the lines of, man, look how bad David is. You've absolutely missed the point. You've absolutely missed the reason the Bible wants us to take two big gulps of this sour milk. Remember, the Bible is slowing down here, and it's convinced us to do one thing, and it's right here in this last verse. It's the thing that David didn't do. So we find out it didn't displease David, but it did displease God. And so what I think what the Scriptures want us to do with this story is simply this, y'all. Take sin as seriously as God does. Take sin as seriously as God does. That's why this story is here. Because sin is a big deal. It is present. It is destructive. And we like to ignore that fact. But it displeases God, so it should displease us. So how do we do that? How do we take sin seriously? Well, there's all kinds of ways. But I think three in particular from this passage. The first one is this. We take sin seriously when we stop chasing a life of comfort. We take sin seriously when we stop chasing a life of comfort. 
Remember, this was when it was spring. Everything was going well for David. His kingdom is established. He is secure, wealthy, successful. In that season of life, David seems to have no acknowledgement for God and to have completely forgotten that he sees everything. You know, this is not an isolated incident in Scripture. The Bible issues this very same warning over and over and over again. I want to take you to one in particular in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14. This is when God's people are about to go into the land overflowing with milk and honey, the promised land where they will prosper. And y'all, they have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. It has been a life of harshness and suffering and lack. And here they go into the land overflowing with milk and honey. And right before they do, God issues them this warning. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statue, which I commanded you today. Lest, when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, that's when, then, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. God's saying, when you're hashtag blessed, watch out. (laughs) Like he told Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to rule over you. You know, many of you in this room, I know, are going through trials and difficult times. And understandably, absolutely, you want nothing more than God to take those away. You know what? Maybe this story will help you see those trials with new eyes. Stop to think about the fact that because of the sin in all of us, man, these times of ease and feel good and comfort can actually be more dangerous to your soul than times of trial. You know what? So many of the Psalms of praise that David wrote, Psalms of praise, Psalms of obedience, they came when David was in caves, not in his palace. So often our times of intimacy with God happen as we're wandering in the desert and our rebellion happens in the land overflowing with milk and honey, doesn't it? It does. Y'all, it's almost as if we have this power. When we have power and ability to get whatever we want, we don't choose to pursue righteousness. We choose to pursue sin and our own desires. So listen, if you want to take sin seriously, guys, stop chasing just comfort and pleasure and realize that God is after your heart and your soul, not just your temporary happiness. So we take sin seriously when we stop chasing a life of comfort. Secondly, we take sin seriously when we acknowledge our potential. Man, it's so easy. Y'all, then the story would be like, man, I ain't never done anything like that. Good night. God bless America. But here's, you've got a problem when you say that, though. When we get on our high horse like we're better than David, because we've never done things that bad, well, have you ever done the good things David did? Have you been called a man after God's own heart? Have you written half the book of Psalms? Have you been anointed king? I haven't. So how can I stand up here and claim to be better than David? 
See, the point of the story isn't that we look at David and say, how could he, y'all? The point of the story is that we look at David and say, if David can, then certainly, certainly I can. Maybe you've never murdered a bunch of people. I hope you haven't. Maybe you've never stolen another man's wife, the man who is most loyal to you. Fair enough. But I would put it like this. I got something in my pocket here. Y'all, this, you know what this is? This is an oak tree. You may say, that's ridiculous. Oak trees are huge. They're bigger than this building, and that big limbs and leaves and roots and the whole deal. Okay, I'll grant you that. Fair enough. It's just an acorn for now. But water it enough, feed it enough, give it enough time, and it will grow into a huge, ginormous oak tree that will smash your house. Just ask the keels. They know about that. It'll squish you like a bug, right? Just this little thing in my pocket. So maybe you've never committed adultery. That's great. But you're harboring lust in your heart. And if you keep feeding it and watering it, you will get there. Maybe you've never murdered someone, but you've been harboring hate and unforgiveness. And you know what? Listen, y'all, with the right set of circumstances, if you woke up in David's shoes and were above the law and had the power and the ability, you absolutely could do the exact same thing. Maybe this morning you have seeds of anger, jealousy, materialism, self-centeredness, laziness, gossip, whatever it is, those seeds are in your heart, and they can produce an oak tree. They can produce the worst sins you can think about. The seeds, the potential, that is, of the worst possible deeds lie in every human heart, and that is the testimony of Scripture. That is what the Bible wants us to take notice of in this story. So we take sin seriously when we acknowledge our potential, when we stop chasing a life of comfort, and thirdly and finally, when we abandon self-help and look for a Savior. See, a lot of our default, y'all, is to come to church looking for a little self-help. You know, so if I come to the the service and I come to the Bible studies, man, maybe they'll help me make a little bit better decisions. They'll help me be a little bit nicer of a person. They'll help me be a better dad, help me get along with my life a little bit, kind of make my life a little bit better. I'm just looking, you know, to kind of keep doing the things I've been doing, but just, you know, a little course correction, a little uplifting, a little self-help. But you know what? That's not what God's after. And that downplays the seriousness of sin. You want to know how seriously God takes sin? I refer to you Matthew 26, 38 through, 9, 38, excuse me, through 39, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is running face to face with the cross. And he goes to pray. And in verse 38, he says to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we all know God's response to that. There is no other way. What this passage is telling us, y'all, is if just one of us would ever figure it out on our own, could ever be good on our own, could ever stop forgetting God every time life gets a little easy, on our own, Jesus didn't have to die. But he did have to die. 
because we can't figure it out. The Bible tells you that you have not, will not, and cannot overcome sin on your own. You are not struggling with sin. You are not wrestling with sin. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses. That's the truth. So you don't need a little self-help. You don't need just a little tweak. You need saving from the power of sin in your life. So how can Jesus do that? Colossians 2, 13 through 14. If you haven't got this highlighting drop, highlight it, circle it, star it. If your neighbor has a different color highlighter, borrow that one too. Do everything you need to do to highlight these verses. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. These verses are telling us if you are in Christ, sin has no more power over you because the penalty for each and every sin has been paid in full. Without minimizing your sin one iota, without looking away even a little bit, Jesus looked at you and said, I love that sinner and I'm going to pay his price. Give me that sour milk. And y'all, he didn't drink just two gulps. He drank it bone dry. That's just part of it. So you may say, okay, that's great. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin so I can escape punishment, but how can we be saved from sin's power in our life today? How on earth can we not replicate David's mistakes over and over and over again? How can we follow God if our flesh is still in us and still returns to sin over and over? Well, this is what it says in verse 13. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave you new life. But it's in him. See, the point of the Bible isn't to put lipstick on the pig, so to speak, dress you up a little bit, dress you up your old, sinful, broken self. No, the testimony of the Bible is you get Jesus' life. He says, here, all of my righteousness, all of my obedience, all of my following God, all of my goodness, here, it's yours. Take it. It's a gift. That's what you get in him. See, men and women, we have to get straight who Jesus is to us. What I want you to know this morning, Jesus is not your life coach. You know who Jesus is? He's your Savior. That's who he is. See, this amazing, amazing thing happens when we stop and take a look at the story, and then we even take the two big gulps of our own sin and brokenness. And I'll say this in closing. The more you take sin as seriously as God takes it, the more beautiful Jesus becomes to you. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.